0: America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to episode 39 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. You're probably wondering, who the heck is this skinny guy with the funny last name? And what the heck is he doing in the middle of this podcast? Well, the answer is that this is my podcast. I own it. I bought it from a street vendor for $13.27 back in 1991. I have the title deed mounted in my downstairs bathroom. And whatever Marjorie Tartuffo might have alleged in the Delaware Court of Chancery, there is a difference between the pronunciation of cook and the pronunciation of cook. It's all in the... And anyway, the copyright court agreed with me, not her, and the prosecutor conceded that there is no way I could have killed all of those people with just a corkscrew and then got back to Buffalo Wild Wings in time for the game. So what I'm saying is that my dear, Mr. Edith, the which you have just made of me to receive the record of: my life. Sorry, that was actually a recording of William Gladstone. I don't know how that got in there. What I meant to say is <laughs> My guest today is Rob Long, a writer and a co-founder of Ricochet. And a currently on strike member of the Hollywood labor force. Rob, <laughs> welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. I
1: could hear the you know, you know, air quotes around labor, by the way.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Because <laughs> I, I think we should start with an explanation of what this strike's about. Because in my experience, and I include myself yeah. within this description... Conservatives tend to hear the two most important words in the coverage of this action. Those two words being Hollywood and strike, and instinctively oppose it. Now, conservatives don't like strikes. Right, right. And of all the people in the world who could go on strike, we assume, maybe incorrectly, that's one reason you're here, We assume that people in Hollywood are the least deserving strikers conceivable. We just saw the sight of the cast of Oppenheimer, pretty much every member of which was rich, refusing to go to the premiere in solidarity. And it seems, ostensibly, it's ludicrous. So what is going on here? Well, uh, it's important to remember that
1: these are all different areas of show business and when people talk about hollywood they tend to think of it as like you know like big oil or the you know auto workers which is really kind of not true because or or, you know the auto auto industry because every hollywood really is just a concept right it's a it's a, a a constellation of relationships between distributors and producers and individuals and money that creates the movie and tv shows that you watch and there isn't much infrastructure there isn't much Capital investment necessary in from Hollywood. They don't own any factories. They don't. None of that is uh, is comparable to our traditional idea of labor. Right? Hollywood is mostly a bunch of individual gig workers coming together for one gig, working for one entity like you know Warner Brothers or Paramount or or whatever. It doesn't really matter where. And so the unions tend to sort of enforce work rules and work standards across all of those sectors, right? So that if you go to write a TV episode, you know, it doesn't matter who you're writing it for, you're covered under certain kind of work agreements. But on the other hand, everybody in show business loves to be, you know, dramatic. So if you ask them what they are, they're like, we're, you know, labor, you know, they like auto workers, like they, they're the machinists. They believe they have this sort of like working class sort of self fantasy, um, Which actually raises a lot of problems. So the current thing is like, you look at it separately, actors have one set of concerns that overlap a little bit with the writers, which have one set of concerns, and which don't really overlap with the directors because their concerns were sort of met in their negotiations with the studios and the streamers earlier this summer. And so the directors, and I'm a member of the Directors Guild, we made a deal. And the writers have a much more thorny group of, of issues and concerns. And I'm in the Writers Guild as well. How many of these groups are there? Well, there's really um there's really only three major unions like this. There's the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild. If you ever saw the movie Team America World Police, you got an idea of what the, how people feel about the Screen Actors Guild. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um so SAG, I mean Screen Actors Guild, they're still out and they're out. They have s- uh, another set of concerns that are that are uh, that overlap with the writers but not much. But the larger umbrella term for these concerns is that you know, the world is changing, technology is changing show business. Show business has actually had this enormous, enormous explosion in the past you know, 10 years. I mean, if you're a writer in there are more writers working today than there were before. There are more shows on the air, the more opportunities to get your stuff in front of an audience. Problem is, like, whenever you have that, what you have is a margin squeeze. So if you think of the internet or streaming is like Walmart. Walmart's got everything in Walmart, but the people producing the products to sell in Walmart get squeezed every year by Walmart's prices, right? So the analogy I always use, I have friends who make a, have made a three bean salad, right? They made it and put it in a giant jar. And somebody from Sam's Club came to them and said, listen, we want to put your three bean salad in our Sam's Clubs. We think it may cost you about a buck and a half for a large jar. So we're going to pay you a buck 51, and you'll make one cent on every jar. Which was great, because they, they sell a lot of jars, but it was really, really hard, and their margins are always being squeezed. And that is essentially what is happening in show business. And, um, you know, you, nobody likes it when you take the punch bowl away.
0: All right, but only 6% of private sector workers are in a union. hmm Right. Hollywood has had these unions for a long time. Right. So before we get to the specific complaints that the Directors Guild the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild might have, is this play-acting? I mean, you just said they like to be dramatic. Were you being flip, or is that part of it?
1: Well, I mean, it it, it isn't play-acting in the sense that these are real concerns that have a real impact, but the the drama of it all is a little bit, you know, sometimes I, I think of it as a little bit much, right? I mean, people forget in show business, the writer is the boss, right? In television, anyway. When I do a TV show, I'm the boss. I'm the man, essentially. I'm the guy who hires and fires. I've made I have made more deals with writers as a writer, as a person, who runs TV shows than I've had made for me by my agent or you know people like that. So the way the system works, it's it's not exactly that the machinists and the you know the the tool guys and those those guys are all kind of working in a cadre. The writers in television and in and everything now is television are in charge. The issues for the writers are. Sort of threefold one is you know, one is that they want a little bit more money every time one of their in, in success one of their shows is shown problem is that no one knows how to define success anymore. And the streamers don't really want to tell you how many people are watching because it's not that many. They're terrified that Wall Street will see their actual viewer numbers for these shows they spent a billion dollars on, and then they're going to be they're going to be hammered. And a, a company like Netflix, you are you you exist only on the fumes of Wall Street or Hulu, same way by by Disney. You exist only because Wall Street has this inflated sense of your of the potential the minute people, investors see that there's not that much potential or that the potential has been way, way oversold, the stock price is going to get hammered, which is kind of happening across the board now. So it's very dangerous for them. They don't really want to tell you these things. Um, uh, I mean, all you really need to know right now is that the number one show on Netflix this summer is a rerun of an old USA TV show called Suits. And yeah. people say, well, that's because Meghan Markle's on it. But she's really only on a few seasons. The whole series is doing just terrific business for Netflix. And that's great unless you are Netflix and you have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars. You've raised that money in that's by floating bonds and debt market to make TV shows of your own that aren't doing as well for you as the TV shows you've licensed that are 10 years old. The second largest umbrella thing to understand is that traditionally, these, the, when the unions have struck, they've struck because the evil, malevolent, greedy grown ups who run the studios and the networks have been doing a great job. And they've been making everybody rich. And they are evil and malevolent, but they are, you know, they're the, the classic idea of the classic liberals' idea of a, of a Republican, right? Mean, evil, greedy, but smart. And that's traditionally how it's been going. Like The pie has gotten really big. You guys are getting your, your all your money. Uh, we want a bigger, fatter slice of the pie that you have created. Makes total sense. This is the opposite. This really is, you guys have messed it up. People running these studios and streamers have made terrible, terrible decisions. They have misinvested money. They have destroyed huge sections of their business that used to be very lucrative. Uh, they have chased this kind of streaming BS. And have sold forward so much of their companies and their treasure to it that they're failing. So it's a very different kind of a strike. And in terms of like the larger issue, like who, who's are these strikes and why? It, it is now kind of vestigial that you're there because, like in the old days, movie making was much more of an industrial position where they had one large company and that company. Uh, had a big studio lot and if you've ever been on a movie studio lot it looks a lot like a construction site i mean it is in many ways a construction site for a long time uh, you had people in show business who used to work for the railroad because they could lay track dolly track for the cameras to move back and forth and that was kind of a railroad job and electricians and people like that so it really felt a lot more industrial than it does now so a lot of this stuff is sort of the holdover but all writers want to know that whenever they go on a new project, actors too, that there's a certain standard of working conditions that are enforced, and a certain standard of pie sharing that's enforced, and that's really the only thing the union can do. And 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 uh, I right. should say one last thing for the convenience of the streamers and the studios. So for the convenience of the employers, the the unions do a fantastic job because they administer all health and pension. So the guy running uh, Warner Brothers Discovery now. David Zaslav, he doesn't have to worry about that part of his business, which is something that, you know, as you remember that General Motors, there's a point in General Motors where $4,000 of every car sold went for healthcare. I mean, General Motors was essentially for a long time a healthcare company that made cars on the side. These studios don't have to worry about that. So the units do provide them a lot of services.
0: So you're in the Writers Guild. Do you have to be?
1: You don't have to be. People like me always have a threshold, Right. It's sort of like being a, you know, a moderate conservative in a big university, right? You're like, oh man, everyone's liberal. Everybody talks about it all the time. There's a political action committee that you can join and give money to that's entirely liberal. But you don't have to give money. You don't have to give money, no. Okay. Um, and so you you know you, you just make your peace with it. Like how much trouble do I want versus how much time do I just want to ro- throw out my hand and say, fine, it's so, okay, fine, go ahead. Mostly. Even during strikes, well, traditionally what's happened in strikes has been, you know, last one was 100 days. So you last over 100 days, and there's 80 days of screaming, yelling, and shouting. And then there's uh, usually a time when some of the powerful showrunner um, writers who um, have a lot of leverage will go to the negotiating committee for the Writers Guild and say, hey, listen, we're all getting back to work, so you better settle this. And then it's sort of settled within two, three weeks. That's usually how it works that's not working that's not what's happening now but that's traditionally how it works within the writers guild there's sort of the segment of the writers who are sort of writing on staff and then the writers who are running tv shows who are much more much more like executive ceos of small divisions basically i mean a tv show or a, you know even a limited series is you know it's a 100 million dollar unit of a big company so and the ceo of that 100 million dollar unit is the executive producer the writer the creator the showrunner so that person really is much more of a ceo than you know the sort of creative portrait painter and if you don't you can do something called financial core which means you just get health and welfare to health and pension contributions and people like me are always muttering and screaming about going on financial going to financial core uh but yeah you know, we tend never to do it because it's such a pain in the neck and you know why
0: bother it's all it's, right so you don't have to join you don't have to but join. you are a member you haven't reached the threshold at which you've gone on a financial court <laughs> right. now you are now on strike i am now do on strike you have to go on do you have to do that if you're a member
1: yeah if you're a member you go on strike you can't i can't <laughs> what's what's great about this is that for writers it seems kind of strange you know it's like a busman's holiday you can't work you're not allowed to work which for every writer is sort of like the dream you mean i don't have to like i mean in fact no i'm enjoined from that
0: can you just tell me bef- what that means before we move on? So when you say you can't work, obviously, if you're an electrician, that, that's self-evident. You can't go onto the film set and right. do what electricians do on film sets. But are you saying that you can't work on a project for which you're paid or you can't sit at home and on spec work on a movie you've been thinking about? Well, you, um,
1: the, the, second quest- the second part of that question is, is a thorny issue because everybody knows that everybody's doing it and you're kind of not supposed to. Or you're kind of not supposed to announce it. Everybody knows you're doing it. That What they don't want is they don't want the studios to be saying to themselves, hey, we'll just sit on our ass here and dra- drag this strike out. And then At the end of the strike, we're going to – all that – there's going to be so much material to sift through. It's going to be great. Yeah, right? You don't want exactly. that. And actually, that doesn't usually happen anyway. That's kind of not how the business works in general. So, But you're not allowed to – I mean I had, I had meetings set up before the strike was called to talk about projects with a bunch of different buyers and – all those meetings were canceled and it's sort of like, you know, heartbreaking, not for me so much, but it was heartbreaking for the writers, the young writers that I'm working with, like you know, two in specific who like were really counting on this as a, you know, they were very optimistic. It's a big moment for them in their career that if this worked, if that, if somebody buys the, the idea the project, they're going to get paid to write a script and then it's going to, you know, what if they make it, they could, this could be a life changing moment. And instead of being a life changing moment, it was, nope, sorry, cancel. So yeah, you're not, then nothing's happening. In show business, there's nobody, no one's having any meetings and no one's talking to anybody and no one's you know, pitching anything and no one's writing any drafts or getting notes on the second draft. And for a long time, if you're Netflix, or you're one of these streamers, that's actually considered that might be pretty good, right? Because when you go on strike, it's a force majeure. You can, all the existing deals you have, you can cancel without paying anybody out. And, you know, if you're Netflix or Hulu or any of this, Apple, you have all this material that no one has ever seen. I mean, the the, the streak. This, the problem with the entertainment business now is that no one is watching these shows. They're just not. And they're making them at this enormous amount of money, paying an enormous amount of money to make these shows. No one is watching them.
0: Rob, does the union make that worse?
1: Well, I mean, the union's going to make it worse. They're, they're trying to. <laughs> their goal is to, like, make it worse because their goal right now, the couple sticking points you know, for the writers in a, you know, in a very traditional union move, the Writers Guild is demanding that there be a minimum writing staff requirement. So depending on how many episodes you have or how many minutes of each program episode you're delivering, you have a minimum amount of number of writers you must employ on staff. That is actually probably the biggest sticking point right now, keeping the writers and the and the studios from making deals, which is that the studios say, no, we don't agree with that. We don't, we don't have minimum staffing. And the Writers Guild is, you know, sensibly for the Writers Guild saying, no, 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 we want you to uh, X number of writers have to be hired for, it, you know, by on a formula of how many episodes you're making. And that will employ many more of Writers Guild members and increase the Writers Guild membership. So studios rightly see that as a threat. I don't know who's going to give in there. The studios are betting on this, which is that the, the people who actually hire the writers are showrunners, which are means other writers who are the bosses and a lot of showrunners that i know me included are uneasy with this demand of the writers guild because it seems to me that the members of the writers guild are telling me how many writers i need to hire to run the show that's my show and i don't like that so the studios are sort of betting that the pressure from the showrunning coalition and the writers guild will sort of force the the uh, negotiators to the writers guild side to to dial down their demand but that to me seems to be where the problem is right there which is like you know anybody who's ever been in a you know in a union shop knows exactly what that is that's the unions trying to make sure that minimum number of make make work jobs essentially Um, yeah i mean i was
0: just thinking about seinfeld i saw an interview with jerry seinfeld recently where he said that he essentially wrote that show with larry david and no one else right Right. So, under these rules, he'd be obliged to have ten people making him coffee all day. It's, it seems silly. If, if you were not in the union, would you willingly go on strike on the merits over this?
1: Well, no, I don't think I would. I mean, I mean, it's it's a complicated issue because. Writers get paid two different ways or well, more than that, but two basic buckets of way we get paid. One is sort of the automatic payments we get from the writer's guild, meaning the guild minimums, we call them. So if I write an episode of a TV show that I created and own, I get paid the same as the freelancer who writes the episode for a TV show that I created and own because the, oh. the episodic fee is set by the guild. And when it's rerun, it doesn't matter who owns it. The guys who created Cheers get the same residual payment for writing an episode of Cheers as I got when I was a staff writer for writing an episode of Cheers. Everybody gets the minimum. The difference is in the episodic fee, which is your producer's fee, basically, which you get paid, and that's negotiated by your agent and your lawyer, and that's when people start screaming and yelling and hanging up the phone. And that is entirely unregulated by the union. The union has nothing to do with it. So that is also the relief valve for the studios and the streamers, which sort of everybody in the Writers Guild knows, but nobody wants to talk about, which is that when they agree to certain concessions on the minimums meaning you know minimum fees contributions to health and welfare and pension residual kind of formula all that stuff when they when they when they get an idea of what what their concessions are going to cost the studios and the streamers right they then look at each other usually it's on the way to their cars after this ne- big negotiating uh, um, you know night day and night, 24 hours, and they're struggling to their cars after making some concessions. All these studios they get together and they are in the parking garage and they they get to collude now. That's sort of illegal, but they get they do it anyway. And then you know one guy from one studio turns to another guy from the other studio and says, okay, well we just gave away 150, 60 million dollars, whatever it is. Now the only way to recoup that is if we all agree right now, as we're standing by our cars, that we're not gonna pay showrunner Rob Long his episode fee that he got last year. We're gonna give him a 25% haircut. And we're gonna give everybody who does that job a 25% haircut. And so I don't want to hear later that Disney outbid me, paid Rob more than Warner Brothers. We all have to agree that everyone's gonna get 25% reduction. Now that is illegal in its collusion, <laughs> but it is exactly what's gonna happen. And Partly the rank and file members of the writer's guild know this sort of in the back of their mind. They know this is going to happen, but they don't really care because most writers aren't showrunners. Most writers aren't at the very tippy top of the business. So they don't, you know, yeah, yeah. but it's just redistribution of wealth, which is usually when the writer, when the showrunner coalition gets the gets the idea that this is what's happening. That's usually when they go and demand an end to the strike before they, they give the store away. By the way, this is the most cynical interpretation of this. So I'm I'm giving you the the uh, the darkest possible
0: view. I mean you're saying all of this in what will tomorrow morning be a public podcast. Do you get grief from your yeah. fellow union members? I do. I do.
1: I get I mean look, I mean I think I'm usually against all of these things, but I'm 30% or 40% for everything they're asking, maybe even more. Because I think for the first time in my memory the Writers Guild is focused relentlessly on the life and Health, happiness, you know, financial stability of a working writer, and in really in the first time that I can remember, in my certainly in my lifetime, definitely in my career, I've been doing it for thirty years. There are more writers in that gray zone. Traditionally, it's been either you're a working writer or you're an unemployed writer. Now there's like a, because of the massive increase in the number of shows on, which are now sh- have shorter run, so maybe it'll run a season or two. Because of that, there are a lot of writers kind of barely eking out, meaning they have one or two years of earning money and then two or three years of not earning anything. Um, And it seems to me the Writers Guild, for the first time in my memory, is focused on those people and on making their lives better. Now, I don't think it's focused enough on practicalities of that, but directionally, I think it's correct. I think it's directionally the right thing for a Writers Guild. If we're going to have a writer's union, that's what it should be focused on. Not rich people but like you know how, how are you going to how are you going to make it if you have to live in LA and um and you're and you maybe are on a 10 episode TV show every 2 years
0: do you think that the circumstances that you're describing will change because wall street perhaps or consumers will realize that there is just too much content Obviously, we're right. not going to go back to the 1950s, or even the 1980s, where there were a handful of TV stations, and if you got a show onto one of them, you weren't guaranteed success, but it seems... No, you,
1: you, you did pretty well. You did pretty yeah, well. You did, yeah,
0: you did pretty well. But the status quo seems to me insupportable, because after a fashion, you're going to have subscription fatigue, and... Those who are funding this are going to notice that only some of the ventures make money, and if that happens, you'll have fewer streaming services with less content, which will mean yes, fewer writers, but also a supply-demand curve that is right more salutary. Is that likely to happen, or is it going to be a race to the bottom?
1: Well, um, I think it's going to be a race to the to, to 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 being atomized is what's going to happen. I mean, the the problem with show business is that everybody wants to be in it. It seems so great. You know, you'd like you go to the premiere and you get to meet Scarlett Johansson. But in general, Showbiz is a great place for individuals to get rich and is a terrible place for shareholders and investors to get rich. And that is traditionally demonstrably true. So, it, what it's going to take is going to take people losing a lot of money, and those people are going to be investors. And that's the most corrective thing I can think of. The strangest thing about the Business it is, that is exists today, in my opinion, is that it's, it seems like it's desperately trying to go back to the past. It was sort of splendidly inefficient, but it didn't really matter because people were going to the movies five times a week and there were only movies. So you went to the movies, you didn't have TV. And so you could have this sort of vertical integration where, you know, RKO Studios also owned RKO theaters. Now the feds came in early on and broke that up in the 30s, but it seemed like a very, very, very simple system where you have. A bunch of movie studios making a bunch of movies, and a bunch of B movie studios making a bunch of B movies. Um, you know, Paramount uh, in its heyday was fit, released fifty plus movies a, a year, and they had B movie labels that were releasing hundred movies a year. It's a lot of content, right? So we've existed in that in that environment before. The problem is that you, it's inefficiently financed right now. It's all top down. So if you're investing in, in this bizarre and inexplicable venture called Warner Brothers Discovery, which makes no economic or business sense at all. You are investing in this thing that's like a cable operation and a a news operation and a movie studio and a streaming service and a TV studio. None of that makes any sense. And it it isn't the way the business works the most efficiently, where, where everyone's divided and everybody does their separate things. That used to be by the way, that used to be part of Nixon's quote-unquote antitrust regulation called the Financial Interest and Syndication Rules, which he imposed in the early 70s, I think 1970, mostly because he hated the TV networks and he wanted to hobble them. So it said essentially TV networks can't own any of the shows they put on their TV, their, their networks, right? So you can't have an interest in the library value of all in the family if you're CBS. Just use that in one example. And in practice, what that did was it created this huge constellation of studios with willing investors and participants trying desperately to get a show on CBS or NBC or ABC. And that actually was incredibly, incredibly lucrative and smart because the people then are doing the job they should be doing, right? You have the people making TV and movies and like just trying to come up with new ideas and stuff. And then they're trying to sell them to the the suits mostly, you know, a lot of them in in uh, in TV business were in New York, right, which were ad supported, very close to the people selling Doritos because the people selling Doritos are the ones who are paying the price for everything. And everyone's sort of, everyone's interests, financial interests were kind of aligned, kind of overlapping, a little bit in competition, but mostly everybody kind of wanted the same big thing. And they had a different piece of the, the revenue stream, depending on the timeline. And that was... Incredibly efficient, and there is no reason why show business right now, today can't tomorrow couldn't do that. They could do it tomorrow. Now, what would mean is over time. Why don't they? Well, because it's just too irresistible. There's too much money. I mean, you're you know you know if you're David Zaslov, there are people calling you up from New York City trying to give you money to buy another thing, another weird railroad car to put on this already over overladen railroad car. And everyone's afraid that if all I do is make content, who am I going to sell it to? Netflix isn't going to buy it because Netflix is making their own content, which is sort of true but also kind of stupid because the number one show, as I said, in networks is, is Suits. It's 11 years old. They have no financial interest in Suits. They just they got to put it on because they need subscribers. And subscribers want to watch Suits, so they're going to put on Suits. You don't think that the, the, the somebody at Netflix right now talking to somebody at, the, at Universal or Comcast, which is now Comcast, um, is going through the old... USA, you know, USA Network had these um, shows they called Blue Sky Shows for years. One, one was called Monk, which is a wonderful show, with uh, starred by Tony Shalhoub. You don't think that Netflix is right now trying desperately to get Monk on TV to be with Suits, or there's one called Psych. They're going to try to build a whole block of these things. These are all reruns that they had nothing to do with, but they're successful financially for Netflix because Netflix is in one business, which is getting Charlie Cook to give them 11 or 12 or $13 a month For an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? They they shouldn't be in the making of it. The making of it is, you know, that's for crazy people and experts. That's for making TV and movies is essentially an irrational business. You should only be in it if you love the idea and you have a high tolerance for risk, and you don't have a quarterly earnings report that you're desperate to to get out of. Because it's a weird, that's a weird venture business. Don't be in it. But be, being on the being on the other business is great. It's like, yeah. I mean, I don't understand why anybody would ever. If you're Netflix, I just don't understand why they would want to make their own TV shows. Like, why? It's so much more fun to sit in your beautiful office and have people come on. Have Rob Long and his agent and manager and lawyer and creative partners come in on their bellies and try to sell you how great the show's going to be. And you can just say, you know, as you're, you know, flicking your cob salad. Um, okay, make one. No, it's it's a, like which would you rather be?
0: You know, they pay you for that, by the way. Oh yeah, they, yeah, you get paid. They do. Yeah. Okay. You don't. There's there's no on spec work. Is mm. that another union rule? That is, is actually that just- no. That
1: is a that is another issue which could which is not. A, I don't think it's going to be a big issue. And the writers' field is making it a big issue because I think they're going to win on that, and they want to be able to go back to their uh, the back to the. uh the membership and say, like, we won. So one of them said, like, okay, there's this idea that if you're called, this happens a lot in the feature business. Sometimes a feature company will say, We want to make a movie. You know, we want to make this, uh, we're making a, a, a Churchill biopic, right? We want you, because you're a big fan of Churchill, to come in and pitch us, fully pitch us how that movie would look, which is a lot of work. And the writer skill feels like that's work. if you're invited to pitch, that should be work that's compensated and I, I I can see that argument because these pitches now are very, very elaborate. I mean, I used to go in and pitch a TV show and I would have one long you know piece of you know, cardboard kind of like a, a cardstock we call it a buck slip just about, about as – a little bit longer than a than a Dollar bill, but not not as narrow. And I'd have like twelve words written on it, and I would just talk my way through the show, and the words would sort of keep me in, in tra- on, on track. And it, in, in the early days, people would come in, and if they had, if they were pitching an outline or something, they would have it written down. And they would, as they left, someone would say, "Hey, do you mind? Could could we just keep that? That like the that those pages that you wrote?" And then the writer would say, "Oh no, actually, I those are my notes. I'm gonna I need I need them." So this has always been a sort of a area of conflict, but it's not going to be that hard to resolve. Mostly it's going to be that no, no writers are ever invited. They'll just, they'll have to, their agents call and demand, you know, Hey, you got to see this, my, my, my client, he's huge Churchill fan. That's how it's going to work. So there is some of that. And there, there is some, but in terms of free writing, like free drafts, sometimes people say, Hey, listen, you know, I know you wrote, this is your second draft and we don't, we, we paid you your full amount now. Um, usually when you write a draft or a feature or for even a pilot script, they call it a draft and a set, meaning you write a draft and then you address a set of notes, which is usually, and then you turn in the second draft. So a draft and a set and the second draft. And then there's a third part, it's called the polish, which is just like, oh, well, we're just concerned about this moment or that moment or something like that. And that's all kind of part of the same package. But now from what I hear, from what I understand there are now multiple drafts people are being asked to write for the same amount. I and mean, I think Netflix is a real villain here. They make people write six or seven drafts that are un, unpaid and then you wait a year and then they say no. Or you wait a year and they say yes, but meantime you're not really available um, because you, know, you, you can't wait a year to get a job. You gotta pay your mortgage. Part of that is the business being kind of screwed up over time. But part of that is also that there's a lot more people in the business and they're a lot younger. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know where you, I mean, I learned, put it this way, when I started, I started in 19, January of 1990 was my first day in show business. And I walked into a room, this is 1990. So if you're young, this seems like a million years ago, but to me, it just seemed like that was moose or modern times. Um, and I was working with people, you know, some of them were so rich, they came in one day a week and just pitched jokes, but I was working with people whose names I had seen on the TV show credits for the TV shows that I loved for most of my life. I mean, there were people there who I, whose names I recognized from the Mary Tyler Moore show. And they were old pros and they would just, you know, lumber in on their Mercedes or their Bentley, some some of them, and sit for a day and watch a run through or hear a script being read and then just pitch these insanely great jokes because they were so good. And they kind of, that's kind of how you learn. Like you learn from these. And they learned, by the way, when they were young, they walked into a, a writer's room and they were taught by the people who wrote, Sid Caesar, your show of shows, or- I Love Lucy, or The Dick Van Dyke Show. So there's a direct line of all these people, and they all kind of taught each other. So even now, like I was in a room not that long ago, and I'm using the lingo that I learned, but every, the young people look at me like, my God, you're just like this ancient creature. using like, what are you talking about? And I was like resolutely demanding that they all use my slang, which is the slang that I learned from people who learned it
0: from people who learned it from Sid Caesar. So... Um, <laughs> like, so, how did you yeah. get into it? Take me back to 1990. How did you get into that room?
1: Well, I was like a, I was a film student. I, I, when I left college, I didn't know what to do. So, um, someone said to me, "Oh, you should go to." I had a teacher at the Yale School of Drama. I mean, I wasn't, I was an undergraduate, but he was at the Yale School of Drama teaching a playwriting class to undergraduates, and he said, "Oh, you should go to film school." And I thought, oh, okay, I'll go to film school. I had no direction, so that guy didn't say you should go get an apartment in Budapest or something. I would have done that, um, and so. I drove out to LA and I was a film student getting a master's in fine arts of all things in screenwriting at UCLA and I'm kind of figuring out the town. And what what I figured out was that the business was wide open. It's just that no one had any time to show you the ropes. Like no one had any time to help you understand how to get an agent or how to get a job. But the minute you, you just, you did a few little things and you put yourself in the right waiting room. They desperately needed people to write, especially young people. So, I kind of figured it out, and then um, I wrote a couple of spec comedy scripts, and I wrote uh, one, or, one or two of them with an old friend of mine who was in New York at the time. He graduated from college a year or two earlier than me, and he was writing advertising. And uh, I said, "Look, if we, if I sent can will you will you entrust me to handle just this part of the stuff that I've learned about show business?" Yeah, so I sent it to three agents. And back in that day, here's how you found who the agents were. Nobody, there was no internet, so you didn't really know. Like you, you would call the writer's guild. So here's the way the writer's guild fits in. And you would a, you ask for the agency department. And there was some, one, one old lady who would answer the phone. And you'd give her the name of a writer that you saw, pretty much somebody you saw who had written something on a TV show that you liked. And then she would give you the agent. You could, you could ask for three writers per call. And then you had to call back and then she would pretend when you called right back that it, what, you were a different person. It was just bizarre. Right. <laughs> and so I, I had six, six writers that I, who were like kind of like at who were young writers or just had been in for a few years. Right. So I went on shows that I really liked that I thought were funny. And I looked at the crawl, the credits and the people who are story editors or script consultants or co-producers, by the way, those are titles that mean nothing. That's like the first grenadier guards or something. It's just, these are just, placeholders for what level you are at this writing stuff and i called this lady and the six the six writers like there was like three agents represented you know almost all these people so i wrote a letter to those three agents and one of them called me right back and said yeah send me your stuff and and then you know next week she said let's come in so we always we we trooped in and we met her and she said okay i want to sign you it was december you need to write another spec and so we started writing another spec and then after new year's Eve, new year's she called us and said, look, the guys at Cheers want to meet you. So, um, you know, put on a clean pair of pants and show up. And so that's what we did. We showed up and we sat there on the sofa with the writers and they were really fun- the funniest people I'd ever met in my life. And as, as you're a newbie, you know, when these funny people are making these incredibly funny jokes, you just think, oh, my God, I can just sit on the sofa and laugh all day. But you're not really supposed to. It's kind of uncool to keep laughing. So you kind of have to pretend it's it's just kind of funny and you have to listen. So a lot of it's just this sort of apprenticeship you get. So we lasted 10 weeks. We had a 10 week term staff writer deal that then they extended and then the next season we were story editors we were the young story editors and then you know within two seasons we were the co-executive producers which is the sign of like the success in show business was that this show Cheers was so successful had been on so long and it was so indelibly etched in the imaginations of all the viewers that Like, yeah, you wanted young people to be writing and running it because they're the ones who had the energy. The show itself was we're never going to be able to mess it up because the show was such a juggernaut and so clear what a Cheers episode was that all they needed were like young people to sort of energetically come up with new and fresh ideas uh, and who weren't yet rich. You know, that was the other theory was that at a certain point you've been doing it for a long time. You're so rich. You're like, why am I putting up with this crap? I want to come in at noon and leave at three, yeah. and only the young people will come in at you know ten or ten thirty. <laughs> so that's kind of how it works.
0: Let's talk about artificial intelligence. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the demands, if you will, of the Screen Actors Guild yeah. is that producers not use AI actors or their likenesses. In lieu of real people, how worried are you about that? Not just on the acting side, but for writers as well. I mean, I think it's a way off, but is it possible that AI could replace writers too?
1: I, you know, I would take the writers section first. I, I, I understand what I guess writers are concerned about. I think I understand it. I, Part of me, my flip answer to that is, boy, if you're a writer and you're worried about artificial intelligence, how bad a writer are you? Because <laughs> I've been looking at this, I mean, the AI stuff isn't that good. I mean, I, I think if you're a, a, you know, a middling or okay journalist, AI is maybe trouble. Although I, if you're any good at all, AI is a terrific tool. So if you're, if you're no good, I think AI is going to kill you. If you're, you know, you're okay, I think AI is going to make you better. And if you're a good writer, AI will be a superpower. I think AI is going to be used more by writers than used by studios. I think the studios are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. AI will be a tool that writers use that maybe studios will be the ones saying, hey, you can't use AI because we can't, we can't control the copyright of AI. I suspect AI is a thing that writers will be using. I'm not really sure... I'm not really sure how, how I would use it. I, I I've yet to see a joke that I thought AI wrote that was funny. But I think if you're if you're turning out I don't know, have you watched a soap opera lately? If you're turning out like soap operas, that's a lot of that's a lot of material every day. Feels to me like that's a kind of an AI way of, you know, two writers and an AI might be able to to do a pretty good job with a soap opera. I think. I don't know. I mean and that's no disrespect to soap opera writing, it just means that there's just that much material that has to cut out and it's mostly plot, right? And the and the acting is something that kind of brings it alive. The actors have a different issue, I think, and have a better issue, Actors just think that if you, you're hiring me to be a performer in this one title, in this one episode, this one episode, this one movie. And if you're going to use my likeness any other place, you have to pay me or you can't use it. And so the current issue is like for back, they call background artists, which are extras. Basically a lot of studios are saying, look, why don't we just scan you when you do a you know for the next five years to three years every movie we make we scan all the background artists and we have them and we own them and we can put them in the crowd scene when the avengers are you know blowing up the mall or we can put them in anything we want and so you you know could potentially could be a background artist an extra and you could be (laughs) going to see a movie and see yourself in it and think i wasn't there i didn't do that and so that's an issue for a lot of people in sag right because what they have is their likeness that's it and they just don't They think that's their product, so they don't want to give it away for free.
0: And I have a great deal of time for that. I think on its own merits, this is a good argument from the actors. I also find the prospect of somebody sitting in front of a computer and making a human being appear to do something that that human being did not do... Yes. ...inherently creepy. Leave aside the commercial problem with that, not paying people for their work. Right. I am quite sure that at some point, the movie studios are going to resurrect Jimmy Stewart or John Wayne or Marlon Brando and put them in a movie. And I think that's appalling. I wrote about this with the Beatles recently. Paul McCartney is touting this final Beatles song. They took a John Lennon demo, and then they used AI to fix it. And I just don't think it's a Beatles song. John Lennon died in 1980. I don't know what he wanted to do with that demo. I don't know if he wanted to work with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. I don't know if he would have liked what was done to his voice with AI. I think there is a point at which it strips away agency, and... If actors are looking at this, saying one of the conditions that I want as somebody who enters into contracts with you is to have at least control over what (laughs) I do with my my body, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Then yeah, I I can see
1: it. Yeah, and I think that has something. Part of I think the reason that has so much validity is because for uh, that that is precisely. You know, I think actors have a hard time. The great ones have a hard time accepting this, but their likeness is the most important thing. Uh, their likeness is all they've got, right? And, and if you're a studio, it's uh, especially now with this sort of constellation of things that you can watch, right? Having a f- well-known face On the one sheet or on the Netflix, you know, for your recommendation scroll or wherever is a big, big deal because you need what they call earned media. Right. You need people to be writing about your show or your movie because they think it's news for free. You don't want to be buying ads for everything because if you're buying ads for everything, that's money. That's a lot. It's very expensive. So Tom Cruise is valuable because he looks like Tom Cruise. As far as the old guys are concerned, that's going to be harder and harder because of the, just the limits of what they call capture. They don't have that much capture on Humphrey Bogart. You'd think they would have more on Jimmy Stewart, but they don't really. They don't have the three hundred and sixty. They haven't. They don't. They don't have a lot of images and image data to manipulate the way they do with a someone you know appearing in film today. Um, just a just, just higher degree of image capture, and that matters right for this kind of thing. But they've already put they've they've done they put they put Marilyn Monroe in a Coke ad. I mean, they've done stuff like that. It'll open up another level, and there'll be another section on your contract, you know, who owns this, who owns that, and I think when actors die, they may, you know, they may have a executor, a legacy, getting royalties, just like, you know, authors when they die, you know. the J.R.R. R. Tolkien's grandnephew or somebody controls the Tolkien estate and made a tons, of, tons of money when Amazon decided to make the Lord of the Rings show for $1 billion. I um, could also see
0: actors putting it in
1: their wills though saying no yeah just yeah, sure. right. i did yeah. i did yeah i yeah exactly right i'm when i'm dead that's it you, No more of me so yeah i but i i i in general i feel like this is an issue that actors have a really really strong reason to strike on they are that those are issues that cut across doesn't really matter whether you're a big star or a background artist they're the same i mean different degrees obviously but you, know, you understand the principle there. And that is an issue where the screen actors guild is sort of standing up for general working conditions and contractual understandings that will apply to everybody across the board, whether you're the, you know, the, whether you're Harrison Ford or your unknown background artist, that seems like something that you can understand. And I, I suspect that it is something that the, the studios and streamers will give in on eventually or they'll come up with some, you know, workaround for it.
0: What do you think about the objection, I think primarily from the right, but I have seen it leveled elsewhere, to this strike that this is the wrong time for Hollywood to be risking its profitability and infighting because it sucks? I mean, this is an argument that, You see from people who think, both within our culture wars and without, that Hollywood is making bad movies, that it has either run out of ideas or been taken over by political fanaticism. (laughs) And with the exception of Top Gun last year and Barbie and Oppenheimer this year, the story of the creative class over the last few years has been one of burning cash, the failure of Indiana Jones, the failure of Disney to make a hit movie, the decline in interest in and quality of Marvel movies. And then you see these people out there on the streets with their placards saying, we want, we want, we want. And some critics have said, really? Well, shouldn't you be good at your job before you do that? Is this mixing up issues? Um, well, sort of. I mean, I sort of understand that, you know, I understand the idea
1: that the conservative, you know, critique, which is true. I mean, this summer, The Sound of Freedom, a movie, that cost about, I think it cost $15 million to make, which is a serious amount of money. It's making tons. I don't even know what its most latest box office gross is now, but it's, it's big. It's a huge, huge movie. The conservatives tend to think of think Hollywood as a place you go to and you become a Hollywood person and you sort of drive around and go to cocktail parties. It's sort of like in you know, Georgetown, right? Right. And um, and it, isn't, it doesn't really work that way. But it's been very convenient for a lot of conservatives because you can then complain about it and not have to do anything about it. So, you know, conservatives for a long time, all they did was complain, complain, complain. Even while the business was sort of atomized in such a way that you could make a movie and release it into theaters or take it to Sundance and actually get people to watch it. Good. Or you could come up with a brand new way of making and releasing movies for an audience that you have an affinity for, and you could become a multi-billionaire overnight. Tyler Perry did that. I mean, there's a reason why Tyler Perry is Tyler Perry. It's because he made movies for a certain audience, and he released them in places that that audience wanted to go to, and then he used the marketing power of connected black churches, and he is a gigantic movie mogul. So- Conservatives tend not to do that, although I think they're changing their mind. Conservatives mostly, bizarrely, for conservatives, like institutions and they want to change the institutions from within or they want to complain about the institution rather than starting their own institution or starting their own, making their own movie. Sound of Freedom is a movie. It's, you, you watch it on movie screens that are owned by AMC and Regal and all these other movie places. And eventually Sound of Freedom is going to be on a streaming service and you're going to be able to watch it on Hulu or whatever. They'll put it on. And that's how it's supposed to work. The failure of the imagination for conservatives in the media business usually starts because they they enjoy complaining about the fact that Hollywood is liberal, which it is. That is all true. And that's really it's intoxicating to complain about how the system is stacked up against you. We, we see this in other areas of cultural conflict where people are talking about systemic this and systemic that. That's essentially what the conservatives have been complaining about for um as long as i know for decades in 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 hollywood on the other hand if you go ahead and you make something like you make the sound of freedom and it's a good movie and you have you know recognizable star jim is a recognizable star i mean you end up with a giant giant hit so i know i I tend to be much more of a pollyanna about this stuff which is like yeah yeah hollywood's extremely liberal but so go ahead make it make a tv show i mean make a make a movie and see what happens but it's got to be good first. So I have not, I have not seen Sound of Freedom behind all my movie watch. I haven't seen Barbie or Up and But it's a good movie from everybody I know who's seen it. It's a good movie. I, uh, I, full disclosure, one of the writers, a guy named Rod Barr, is a friend of mine. And he's a lovely guy. And he's a very smart guy and a very good writer. So I can easily see why Rod, why this movie could be good. Because Rod is a really, really smart person and a creative force. right? But it's a good movie first. And th- that's kind of... You know, I, I can't tell you how many times somebody's come to me and said, We ought to make a conservative sitcom. And then they pitch me their conservative sitcom, which is not funny at all, but is instead just sort of angry. And I'm like, Well, who's going to watch this? Like, it sounds like it sounds <laughs> doesn't sound fun to yeah, me. Yeah, this is the old observation
0: yeah. that you don't want to make conservative art. You want to make art. And if it yeah. is conservative, great. But anytime you explicitly set out to make conservative art, it tends to be conservative and not art. Yeah, and... And, and-, and that, by the way, is a problem the left has too. Oh, I yeah. think that's one reason for this criticism, which is that Hollywood, and I know I'm using the term again as if it's one place, but many of the major players in Hollywood have become too accustomed to, in the middle of television shows or movies, some of them for kids, just going off on these yeah. bizarre yeah. political didactic rants that take you out of the moment and ruin it. And I do think that's one reason why many of the major players are, are struggling. But I as agree. you say, the way to fix that is not to do the same thing the other way around. It's to make Top Gun. Look, Top Gun made a huge amount of money, and it made a huge amount of money because
1: it's a really, really good movie. It is. Um, yeah, I, I, to me, I mean, I'm in the comedy business, so I'm a little bit more despairing because I feel like really funny stuff requires you to be a little bit wild and a little bit over the top and i'm you know i remember even as a movie goer how much fun the summer was because there were always two or three comedies that were giant hit huge hits that were big sloppy loud noisy funny they made a you know maybe they made a bit of sense but not really anchorman is a hilarious movie that makes kind of no sense zoolander another hilarious movie that's sort of like what like yeah. Like, it doesn't like, it's just big, it's just a big, loud, funny movie. And every yeah, summer if you happens. You said to yeah.
0: me, explain Zoolander to your dad. I'd say, yeah, I can't. You You'd can't. have to watch. It, yeah. Like, I was, and I was remembering just, I was remembering
1: just, just this morning, I was trying to remember, I was trying to think of the last movie that was like that. And like, I remember you know, they, they had this fantastically bizarre gasoline fight these four stupid male models in their, I don't know, their Jeep Wrangler, they're filling it up and they just, they start having fun spraying each other with gasoline. And it, I think it's like set to wham, wake me up before you go, go. And it's so great. It's so hilarious. It's totally bizarre, right? But it's a wonderful movie and it's really funny. And I'm not sure that you could, I'm not sure you could do that anymore. There used to be an old kids magazine. I mean, for children called highlights. And I remember it cause I was a when I was a, child we read highlights i got highlights and highlights had like very clean anodyne kind of very uh you know i'm, I'm sure now it, if they i don't even know if they still have highlights but i'm sure now if you read it it's in all about like cooperative economics and climate change but back then it was really more about sharing and caring and being nice and etc and they had like this one cartoon strip called goofus and gallant and it was really just these two, these two boys. Goofus was always rude and grabbing. Goofus just grabs whatever he wants. Gallant asked politely, hey, "May I please have the you know cookies?" And the title of on Highlights magazine was "Fun with a Purpose." And I always thought, every now and then, I think about that is the problem right now with comedy. It's people are trying to do Highlights magazine fun with a purpose. Comedy has no purpose. It's just supposed to make you laugh. To the extent that it has a purpose, it's to remind you that. Everything in God's creation has a funny side to it, and that's about all that comedy can be said to do. So once you add purpose to it, and you say, "Well, no, actually, you know, comedy can teach you a little bit about, you know, gender identity." Well, then you're <laughs> you're just sunk because it can't, right? Um, right. So that, 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 that to me is where show business is failing, but somebody's going to figure it out. And somebody, you know, like, like somebody where's the sound of freedom comedy and someone's going to do that. And it's going to be, and as long as it isn't mean or nasty or designed to like, you know, teach the libtards a lesson or whatever um, it's going to be giant. I have a friend of mine, Roy Price, who's a really smart guy, wonderful guy was the really architect behind um, Amazon studios. And he's like, okay, look, the big movie, Sound of Freedom, big song, that Rich Men North of Richmond song, um, where's the TV, where's the streaming service for that audience? Pretty big audience. And if you add into that the Roseanne reboot, the Connors, and a couple other things, that's a big, big audience.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And. And it's a market opportunity. And all I, you know, you and I sometimes go to the same thing. So I meet a lot of like conservatives and they're always very nice. And many, many, many of them are extremely, extremely rich. Those guys could start one tomorrow if they wanted to. It's very, very risky. It's not a terrific business. Your ROI is not that great. But you could start one. And there's a...
0: I'm not sure giving to many of the political institutions that those people give to is a great ROI either. No, I agree. I agree. So last question, what's going to happen with this strike? Is it going to end soon? And how much of what they want are the Writers Guild and Screen Actors Guilds going to get? Um, I don't,
1: I, I would have, if you would asked me a week ago, I said, I would have said it was going to end soon. It'll be, it'll be ended and end by the week after Labor Day. I think that's less likely now. They had a, they had a meeting, they exchanged proposals and then they had another meeting. Friday, I think, and which was reported on Monday, we all got the email saying uh, it was a terrible meeting. The studio chiefs met in person with the negotiating committee. You know, they, they, the studio chiefs are these big figures, the Bob Iger and David Zaslav, the of titans, right? And so they basically don't want to be in the room because they want to have some kind of, you know, deniability. But then on Friday, they were in the room, and apparently all it was was a lecture to the writers about how they're being unrealistic, which is rich coming from people who are getting these giant bonuses? Meanwhile, are laying off thousands of their employees and are making made, made terrible business decisions. To be taught, told, to be lectured about the realities of business by those clowns is probably was galling. And I think reading between the lines on the the letter we all got from the negotiating committee, <laughs> it, it was very galling. So it suggested to me that maybe we're not they're not really ready to sit down and talk. So it could last another month. I mean. I can't imagine it lasting longer than a month, but in terms of production and ramping up production, the minute you get to November, sort of November one, you know, right. You know, now you're talking about, okay, now you have a week of no work cause it's Thanksgiving. And then you have like a, two weeks where everything shuts down between Christmas and new years. And you're really only talking about three, three and a half weeks checkerboarded across that, those two months where you could really get something going and make progress on a project. Yeah, so it seems unlikely. It seems more likely that if it doesn't get settled in the next two, three weeks, it, no one's going back to work until 2024.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Rob Long. <laughs> Which, by the way, you know, I,
1: I mean, I know I shouldn't be saying this, but like we, there's too much on TV anyway. People watch too much television in general. I shouldn't be saying that, but they do. Maybe if there's nothing on, people will be forced to turn to each other and have a conversation, put their phones
0: down. So you think the strike should go on forever?
1: Well, I think that people should uh, remember that there's that, that you can make as you can make trip three times as many, you know, social networks and three times as much social media and three times as many TV shows and movies, but there's still only 24 hours in a day. And so you should sleep at least seven or eight of those, right? And then you want to have some some of that you got to go to work and some of that you should be like just maybe idly sitting and talking to your friends and family doesn't leave you that many that much time anyway to be watching these things you know maybe you have an hour and a half or two hours a day that's a lot i don't know i would spend those two hours uh reading a book or just sitting quietly with your loved ones you don't have to talk
0: the authors of books are not on strike they are not on strike and the books they're all available and they're free at the library that's true even in florida (laughs)
1: Even in Florida well as you know the the dark night of fascism descended on Florida a long time ago
0: (laughs) alright Rob appreciate it anytime and that's all we've got time for this week thank you to my guest Rob Long thank you to Asa Hutchinson the former governor of Arkansas who for some reason has spent the entirety of this episode standing in the corner thank you to you for listening and we'll see you next week